and open up to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be reading verse 21 and all the way down to the end of the chapter, which is verse 48, I believe. In the Beatitudes, our Lord gives us the essential nature of a citizen who lives in his kingdom. We studied the Beatitudes. Next, he told us of the function and the purpose of living in this world. That is to be salt and to be light. Now, because in the text, Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience who will correlate everything he says, every teaching that he gives by the law of God, our Lord had to show them his relationship and his teaching as it relates to the law. So in our text today, Jesus shows the true meaning of the law. But this isn't uh, Jesus speaking against Moses. It was Moses who God gave the laws to, the Mosaic law. It's what it's called. The law of God is the Mosaic law. But, but Jesus isn't competing with Moses here. It's Jesus against the false interpretations of Moses' law, the law given Moses. In a nutshell, the scribes and the Pharisees made two general errors where the law is concerned. First, they restricted God's commands, like in the law of murder that we're going to read. They restrict it. And secondly, they extend God's commands past his intention, as in the law of divorce. So what Jesus came to do, and we talked about this in prior weeks, was not to shorten the law, not to expand the law beyond what the Old Testament gives us, he came to carry out the law. And in carrying out the law, we pick up at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Verse 21a again, you have heard that it was said to those of old. What we're about to learn from Jesus Christ is that something isn't true just because it's old. And in that day, there were those before him who had made it pretty clear that you should not murder, and anyone who murders is liable to judgment. But Jesus said in verse 22, if you look at it, he said, but I say to you, again, he's not going to expound beyond the law, take it where it's never been. And he's not going to diminish it. He's going to carry out the law in the purpose for which God gave it. He's going to fulfill it. And so he says in verse 22 uh, that he's not relying on prior teachings of the scribes and Pharisees. But I say unto you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. So the scribes and Pharisees, here's what they taught. They taught that anything short of murder was allowed, okay? Jesus corrects this and makes it clear that it's not only those who commit the act of murder who are in danger of judgment, but those who have a murderous intent in the heart. They're also in danger of the same judgment. To the scribe and Pharisees, the law was really only a matter of external performance. That's really what it was about had nothing to do with the inward work in your heart. You could have a, a wicked heart, but if you acted on the outside justly and righteously, they were happy with you. That's, you met the law's standard, their standard of the law. 
Christ said, I'm going to abolish that nonsense because the law of God is written on the tablets of the heart. It's from within, it's inside of you. If it's inside of you, even though you don't act on it and murder someone, you're still guilty. You're still guilty. It begins in the heart. Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Here it is. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, he will be liable to the hell of fire. Oh my goodness. Raka, that's the word in the Greek for fool, raka. Jesus said, don't ever call anybody a fool. Don't do it, okay? Uh, if you translate raka into the English translation, it's words like knucklehead, blockhead, nitwit, numbskull, bonehead, brainless idiot. If you ever call people by those names, it's as if you're saying they're a fool, and you too are standing against what God's command tells us. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Does that mean that we should track down every person who has something against us? Uh, some of us would spend a long time with that laundry list. We could write a book for the people that have something against us. The key to understanding this verse is, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you. When you're at the altar, listen, when you're in the worship of God, place it in any setting, it doesn't matter. When you're in the worship of God, it's important that you understand that that in that place, you remember, if you remember that somebody has done something against you or they have something against you, leave that place of worship and go make it right with them. What's the emphasis? The emphasis is not, it's not de-emphasizing worship. It's saying that you're not truly worshiping if you're holding on to what you know to be true. If you know someone's against you, go and make it right with them. Jesus is saying that our worship of God doesn't justify bad relationships with other people. Paul said in Romans 11, or 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The point is, we often like to quote Matthew 18, that if your brother, if, if you have ought with your brother, go to him. And the quick response that we give is, I don't have a problem with him. I don't have an issue with him. Well, you're not off the hook, because in Matthew chapter 5, it says, if you know that your brother has ought with you. So whether or not you have an issue with somebody else or they have an issue with you, Jesus says, leave the worship and go and make it right. Take care of business. Make sure you get that right with them. You're not off the hook just because you don't have an issue. You have an issue with God. The issue is you're trying to act like you're worshiping God when he knows that you know somebody has something against you and you're doing nothing about it. Go and take care of that. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. There is a historical Jewish framework for what Jesus said there. Um, it was 
a situation where a person, if they had an ought with somebody else, they were to go take them and bring them to court and, and get the judge to make things right. But Jesus is saying in that day, what he's saying is, as they come and take you, you make it right with them before you ever get to the judge. Because if you get to the judge, he might rule against you, and in ruling against you, you spend time in prison, and then you can't pay back your debt. Well, that's if you take it literally in that sense, but I don't think he means that for us. This is figurative. And what Jesus is basically telling us today is that we need to make things right because when we fail to make things right with people, when instead we take the position, ah, oh, that nitwit, that fool, when we hold that position, we're literally imprisoning ourselves with anger, frustration, resentment, and all those things build up inside of us. You are in a prison, and it just drags out the situation. Nothing gets resolved. You and that person never reconcile. And usually, over time, it becomes even more complex. And now you don't even know what caused it to begin with or how to get out of it. You're just not feeling right about them. Maybe it was something they did to you, and you just don't feel right about it. And it literally puts you in prison. we got to be careful there. Verse 26, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. What does that mean? Figuratively, it means you need to reconcile. You need to have a zero balance budget with that person. Go ahead and make sure there's nothing left between the two of you. I'm not talking or financially between them. I'm saying that you need to make sure that there's no account left. It's all good. It's all good. You're forgiven or they forgive you, and you receive that, and you let it go. You, you don't keep walking in it. I think many of us have found this to be true at one point or another when we had the opportunity to deal with a situation and we chose not to because of what? Pride, let's just be honest. Then over time it grew until it became so complicated and confusing that we actually sealed the fate of the relationship. Jesus said this scenario can be avoided. Talk it out with your adversary while you still can. Be humble. Own your stuff. It is so easy for us to point the finger, to only focus on their mess, the junk in their trunk. And you've got a, junk full of, a, a, a trunk full of junk too. And God's like, I really, I'm not speaking to you to fix them. I'm speaking to you about you. The fact that you're focused on them should tell you just how messed up you are. That you have to focus on them to feel better. Isn't it interesting how the way we feel better about ourselves is put other people down around us? That's how we make, that's how we feel good. Well, I'm not, I'm not like him. You should see what he did. Jesus is saying, when you have to focus on somebody else, you're only revealing your own mess. You don't even, but you don't know it. You're the mess. Ah, he's a nitwit. You're probably the nitwit if it comes down to it, but I'm not saying that because Jesus said, if I do, I'm in trouble. So, But no, what you're speaking over them is probably more true about you. Because you're not letting go. 
There's no reconciliation. So in a sense, you are in prison. We should heed the warning of the Apostle Paul, who in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, he said, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. See, that's the deal. Anger in itself is not the sin. It's what you allow anger to do to you. Anger could be an opportunity for the devil to work in your life if you allow anger to take you in that negative place. But it doesn't have to. You can be angry because an injustice was done, something was wrong, and the anger drives you to make it right. When anger leads to a positive outcome, how can you say anger was bad? In the sense that I didn't contribute to a problem, I simply, it drove me, it, it, it energized me to make sure things get done right here. And so what would drive me to make things right? When I know that there's something between another person and myself and it's been going on for 20 years. Anger ought to come up. Not anger against them. Anger that I've let this go 20 years and haven't fixed it. So let the anger point you towards something positive. Something good. Um, I was seeing a counselor about a time when I was really angry. I was frustrated. I was confused and the counselor said to me, I want you to suck the life out of the pain that you feel. Suck the life out of it. And what he meant was, don't let that pain take you to sin. Where now you resent the person, you can't forgive them, and now you're just never... No. Take that anger and let God teach you through this time of pain and suffering. Let God grow you. And then, to the best of your ability, as, it is, as it's within you, get right with them. Get right with them. And by the way, that doesn't mean when you reconcile with a person that you've been angry with and that you've had aught with or that they've had aught with you, you didn't, I haven't had any aught against them, it's just them. Well, st you still have to go reconcile. But when you do that, understand that the goal here is that you would be free. They would be free. It doesn't mean, though, freedom in getting reconciled doesn't mean that I trust them again. If I trust them again, if they've done it to me before, it's possible they could do it to me again. So I'm free in reconciling, but trusting people that are untrustworthy could put me right back in prison again. So sometimes you're not going to trust them. Trust has nothing to do with reconciliation. You trust the Lord that I can reconcile with anybody over anything. But whether you can trust man again, only the Lord knows. I think it's good for us to try, you know, but you take little steps of trust. You don't just trust them with everything. You take little tiny steps of trust. And trust can then grow again, and it can be a positive between the two of you. I hope that makes sense to you. I hope it makes sense. Paul said this, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. In fact, Jesus goes on and says in verse 23, or 27 rather, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So here Jesus is again. Okay, you've heard that it said don't murder. That's the outer, that's the outward experience of murder, the act of murder. But I say to you that the real intent of the law given to Moses is that even if you have anger against a person, then you're just as guilty as the guy because you're both sinning. Now, don't think that Jesus is saying that holding anger over somebody is the same as murdering an individual. That's not what he's saying. He's saying both are sinful. Both will land you in the same place, even though the one sin is far greater to physically murder someone as opposed to holding thoughts in your mind about them that are not good. Those are two different things. But they're both sins. And here now he talks and he says, what about looking at a woman with lust? You've heard that it said that we should not commit adultery. But I'm telling you, if you look at a woman in your heart and you entertain a thought in your heart, having never experienced a physical affair, you've still committed the sin. It's still sin. The scribes and Pharisees taught that the act of adultery was wrong. What they failed to teach was the adulter that adultery begins in the heart. Nobody just goes out and never has a thought beforehand, and next thing they're doing is a physical affair. No, that's more like rape. But even rape has intent from the beginning. No, it's, it's something that got started in your heart. It was an emotional affair long before it became a physical affair. They didn't teach that. Jesus is saying it's not just the outward act of adultery. It's the inward act of lust in your heart. Entertaining wrong thoughts in our mind are just as sinful as committing the act. Some people only keep from adultery because they're afraid of getting caught, but in the heart they commit adultery every day, and they feel okay about it. You shouldn't. You shouldn't. It's good that they keep from the act of adultery, but it's bad that their heart is filled with adultery. At, at this point, I want to clarify, because I want to make sure that we're not misunderstanding here. I want to point out that Jesus isn't saying that the act of adultery and adultery in the heart are the same thing. Don't be deceived by that. Because some people might be thinking, well, you know, I've already committed adultery in my heart, so I might as well go out and do it live as well. Have a physical affair. That's not what Jesus is leading you to do. The act of adultery is far worse than adultery in the heart. Jesus is making the point that they're both sin and both are prohibited by the command against adultery. So in the grand scheme, we've all looked at someone with lust in our heart. We all have. And in that sense, we're all adulterers. None is righteous. Well, speak for yourself, Pastor Greg. Oh, so you've never allowed an emotional affair with someone other than your spouse to occur? You've never got the thrill of getting email from that person who's not your spouse? You don't get a thrill when you show up at work and you know that they're going to be there and they're going to say something positive about you? And while they're just making a comment 
not thinking anything of it, you're taking it into your heart. You're developing an emotional connection with someone. I'm just going to tell you, that doesn't mean that you will have a physical affair, but you're going down that path. That's where you're heading. If you don't stop the emotional affair, let me tell you something. That's why texting is so dangerous. That's why Facebook can be so dangerous. All the social mediums, you need to be very careful because you're not looking a person face to face and your spouse doesn't see what you're writing and who you're writing it to. And you can easily be swayed and wooed into an emotional affair with someone else. You go on Facebook, you look up the name of a past friend from high school, and now you're checking them out, and you kind of do a private message with them and catching up, and on the surface it looks so innocent. But in your mind, in your heart, you're feeding emotionally off of them. Things are coming up, feelings, thoughts, that should only be reserved for your spouse and no one else. I'm not going to say that this is what you have to do, because this is not the law of God, but this is what I did. When I decided that Rini was the person for me, I got rid of the old girlfriend pictures. All of them. All of them. She didn't get rid of all her old boyfriend. That's, that's another... <laughs> Just play it, just play it. I couldn't, I couldn't help. That just was right there. See, that's how wicked the heart is. It's deceitful above all things who can know it. But I did. I, I, why? Because that's a temptation to remember someone else and have an emotional mind affair with them. Does that make sense? This is what Jesus is addressing. He's saying just as somebody would go out and have a physical affair and you'd say, I would never do that. Okay, good, I'm glad. Because that's a terrible sin. But don't think that you're not sinning. Don't think that there's not an issue here. There's a sin going on. And what are you going to do about it? Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, again, Jesus is using a figure of speech. This is not to be taken literally, okay? All right, you got a problem picking your nose, and that's, that's, your mom told you that's a sin, so she's going to chop your finger off. No, that's not supposed to happen that way. All right? Your physical body doesn't go to hell. Neither is he saying that you should sever a part of your body. Jesus isn't promoting mutilation here. What he's saying is don't feed the part of your being that leads you into sin. Treat it as though it were dead, as though it were cut off. It needs to die. Jesus is saying that we need to be willing to make sacrifices in order to walk in obedience with God. If part of our life is given over to sin, then stop feeding that part of your life. It can condemn you. It can actually condemn the whole life. 
It's real important that we get this. Don't feed the part of you that's leading you into sin. If sin has an address, stay away from that street. Honestly. If your temptation is to go get a drink after you haven't had a drink for five years, and every night after work you're driving down the street and you go by that particular bar, you need to stay away from the street that the kilted mermaid is on. You don't have to go down Old Dixie, you know. There's other streets that run parallel. That's what he's saying. You, you want to make sure and end what it is that's trying to get a foothold that becomes a stronghold in your life. If sin has a certain time period, make sure you miss it. If bad things, only bad things can happen to you after midnight, then make sure you're in bed and take an extra Dramamine. If sin has a certain channel on your TV, delete the channel. And if that's not working, get rid of the TV. You see, you, listen, you've been, you've been raised with Christ, a new creature. The old person is now dead. The old person, don't give the old person life. You should be dead to that stuff, amen? Die to it. Do what you have to do to die to it. Don't let it live in you. Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. The Pharisees were basically divided into two camps. There was the school of Shimei, and then there was the school of Hillel. Those who followed Shimei were the conservative bunch. They, they would say that on the basis of Deuteronomy 24, divorce could be granted only in the case of uncleanness, which they interpreted to be sexual immorality or adultery. The followers of Hillel were very liberal, saying uncleanness is much broader than simply adultery or immorality. If a woman, for example, put too much salt and pepper on her husband's eggs that caused him to lose temper, he could divorce her. She caused me. She made me lose my temper because she didn't fix my eggs right. I'm going to write her a letter of divorce. That's what the school of Hillel would have told you is okay to do. The school of Shimei would have said, no, no, no way, Jose. Only, only sexual immorality, the Greek word there is porneo, should cause you to divorce your wife, and you don't have to divorce her because of that. But you have a right to if you choose to. So there's a legitimate reason for divorce, and there's an illegitimate reason. If a man saw a woman who was more righteous or virtuous than his wife, according to Hillel, he had the right to divorce her because she was now unclean by comparison. That woman's a whole lot more clean looking than you are. You've become an old hussy, so I'm going with her. I mean, it's ridiculous some of the reasons that guys gave to divorce their wife. The followers of Shimei said a written bill of divorce must be given. The followers of Hillel said all that was required was for the husband to look at his wife and say, I divorce you three times. If he said it three times, you're good to go. Good grief. Consequently, not unlike today, divorce was occurring for the most frivolous reasons. Okay? And so Jesus said, verse 32, look at that one. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of porneo, sexual immorality, 
makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, let me explain something to you here. When he says it makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery, there are those who take the truth of the law and then they carry it out like the Pharisees to an outcome or an end that is condemning. And that does not line up with the whole of Scripture. So let me explain to you. Based on the original text, I strongly believe that this verse means that although God's plan is two people remain married until death separates them, those who divorce and remarry, in effect, do commit adultery. But they don't live in adultery. It's not like you're written off by God the rest of your life, that you're living in adultery. Scripture doesn't say in Matthew 21, write it down, Matthew 12, rather. Matthew 12, 31 or 32, 31 and verse 32. Matthew 12, 31, 32, listen to this. Jesus said, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Verse 32, And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Here's the point. We're all sinners, folks. Everybody in this room is a sinner. We've all missed the mark. Look around and you'll see a murderer sitting in front of you. Maybe not physically committing murder, but in their mind they've been angry and held people in contempt. Sitting behind you is a person who's committed adultery. Oh, maybe they didn't commit the act of adultery, but they have lusted in their heart. And you're not so special yourself. We've all sinned. Amen? And here we see that it's what's important is recognizing that we're all sinners. We're all in need of a Savior. And when Christ saves us, He forgives us. He forgives us of our sins. The only sin He does not forgive of is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Everything else is forgivable. Now, that's not a license to go out and sin. If you do that, you haven't read the whole of the Scripture. You're not reading Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. You need to understand that the reason that we're saved is so that we are set free from the bondage of sin. Not to go out and sin better, now we recognize that as clothed in flesh and blood, I still fall short daily, but my heart is leaning towards, it's bent towards not sinning. My heart is bent towards living in the freedom of Christ. Amen? Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. What he's saying is, don't make 
any oaths. Don't swear by anything. Why? Because everything belongs to God. And when you, make a, when you swear by something, you're swearing by God. Jesus said, not a good move. Don't do that. Verse 36, and do not take an oath by your head, for, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. When a person has to swear... It's because they've got something to hide. Or they're recognizing that the person's not going to believe them. Well, guess what? If they're not going to believe you, either way, why swear? Just say, well, I disagree. I said yes, I didn't say no, and my yes is good. You can go with my yes. If that's not good enough for you, you're not going to believe me anyway. Don't swear by them. Don't do it. Okay? The scribes and Pharisees had twisted the law. They said, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Here's why. They said that so that they could virtually swear by any other name than the Lord God. That's what they were saying. They wouldn't swear by God. They wouldn't swear, they'd, they'd swear by Jerusalem. And so Jesus is correcting them, saying, hey, you're swearing. And the point is, if you swear, you're swearing by God. doesn't matter what you call it. I swear by my mother's grave. I never did understand that. How, how stupid, you know? I swear by your mother's grave. Um, you're swearing by God. Don't do it. Jesus reminds us that God is part of every oath. If you swear by heaven, earth, Jerusalem, your head, you are swearing by God. The minute you say that you have to say, I swear, you're in trouble. Just stop while you're ahead. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Let that be good enough. They don't believe it, too bad. You don't have to prove anything. Just let it be yes, let it be no. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would, would, sure you, would sue you rather, and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Here Jesus presents the fullness of the eye-for-an-eye law and how its idea of limiting revenge extends into the principle of accepting certain evils which will occur in this world. He's not referring to physical blows here. Again, this is figurative. He, it's not about a physical blow that he's referring. If somebody, you know, if somebody just plows you on the right side of your face, you're not supposed to turn the left so they can plow you again. That's a whole different subject. Okay? Uh, he's referring, actually, to insults. Deep insults. When someone insults you deeply, he says, go ahead and turn the cheek. Let them insult you again. It's okay. It's no big deal. He's not saying don't defend yourself if somebody's trying to kill you by just turning your cheek. He's saying that when people come after you with words, it's just words. It's just words. It's also wrong to think that Jesus means that there's no place for punishment or retribution in society. Jesus is speaking about our personal relationships with people here. He's not referring to the proper functions of government which is to restrain evil. You want a government that has a police. 
you want a government that restrains evil. Okay? That's important. Romans 13, 1 through 4 tells us that. So I must turn my cheek when I'm personally insulted, but the government has a responsibility to restrain the evil man from physical assault. I might turn my cheek when somebody says something that I don't like and they say it, make it personal about me, but I'm not going to let somebody knock my door down, come in and take my family and take my things. Jesus isn't saying that you can't defend yourself. What he's saying is on the level of relationship and communication, people are going to hurt you. It's okay. Go ahead and turn the cheek. You know what happens when you turn the cheek in those situations? You take the sting out of their blow. When somebody speaks negatively towards you, why are they doing that? They want to hurt you emotionally. And when you allow them to do it and you don't retaliate and you just turn the cheek, you're like, okay, whatever. Then you're actually taking the sting out of their blow. There's no, it's not fun to them if they say something cruel about you and it doesn't bring a reaction. You just rob them the thrill of being mean. In fact, they're not going to keep picking on you if you don't re re respond or retaliate. It's no fun. They'll go find somebody else. Jesus is saying, hey, you're a child of God. You know your identity. What, if, what does it matter what they say about you? You know who you are in me. You know that you're secure in me. You know that I created you after my image. You know that I gave you uniqueness and personality and everything about you is unique, your giftings, your callings and everything. What does it matter what they think? And when you just allow that thought to enter your mind, you don't have to respond. You don't have to say anything back. And literally, it frustrates the dickens out of them because they've lost. They actually lost the fight. Because you didn't fight. Isn't that wonderful? I have an uncle. We were talking about it Thursday night. Scott Walker and I were laughing. I went to my mom. My uncle Al, who was a pastor over in Tampa, Florida, in the Clearwater area, years ago. My dad's brother. And my uncle Al, uh, somebody could do something terrible to him. They could uh, pull out in front of him and then turn at him like he did something wrong. It, the light was green. He was going through the light on a green light, and they were running a light, and then they hit, slammed their, Wah! and he would just look at him, and he would say, bless you, brother, and keep on driving. <laughs> Isn't that wild? Bless you, brother. Try that sometime. Bless you, brother. Bless you. I love it. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you've ever lashed out at someone who refused to fight back, you know how small it made, made you feel. You know, when, or when, when you refuse to fight back, you know how small it made you feel. Don't fight back, love back. Nothing will disarm your enemy so easily. Luke 6.27, turn there if you will. I want you to read this with me. Luke 6.27 it's basically the equal message that Jesus is preaching, but it's, re, it's been recorded by Luke, the physician. And here's what it says. Because Jesus tells you how when you don't respond with like anger, with like words, 
when somebody tramples you underfoot, you know, when they hurt you deeply, you're saying, I can't love them back. How do you do that? How do you act so kind and let them just continue? Okay, here's how. Jesus said, but I say to you, to you here, love your enemies. Here it is. Here's how you love them. Do good to those who hate you. Do good to them. Find a way to do good to them. Those who hate you. That just runs contrary to everything inside your fiber and being, doesn't it? But you're a Christian. Christ is in you. He'll give you the strength to do it. Look what he says next. Bless those who curse you. Bless you, brother. They want you to retaliate with your own cursing, and you're blessing them. Pray for those who abuse you. Physical abuse. No, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying stay in that situation and allow physical abuse to continue. It's talking about those who lash out, those who try to emotionally beat you up. They don't own you. It's interesting here. I just think it's very interesting. Bless them. When the person who bugs you the most comes down on you, look at him and say, the Lord bless you. The Lord be with you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you <laughs> and give you peace. And mean it. They're going to look at you sideways. What? 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 It doesn't make sense. Pronounce blessing upon them. Do good to him. Pray for him. Like the girl from Miami, my good friend uh, in Palm Beach Gardens, came from Miami, and so periodically friends would come up and visit, and one of the girls uh, would visit. I'm not making this up. Her name was Faith and DeWord. Faith Ann, her last name was DeWord. Her parents named her Faith Ann. Faith and DeWord. Anyway, um, she married a guy who was having an ongoing adultery with another woman. And he wasn't hiding it from her. I'm good to you. I take care of you. I provide for you. But on the weekends, I go be with this other woman. I need that. And so Faith, who could have just divorced him, could have run off and this and that and whatever. I mean, you know, you think about it. Just turn on the TV and see how people react to the stuff like that. Let me tell you what Faith did. Faith practiced this passage. It's going to sound so bizarre to you till you hear the outcome. Faith, when Friday would come, would iron his shirt before he would go out in the evening. Would have his pants brought back from the cleaners. She would do everything she could to honor the commitment she made in that marriage. Knowing what he's going to do. And it drove him nuts. It was like pouring coals of fire down on his head. See, what we do is take matters in our own hands and I'm going to... Ah! You say, man, I, I'm not like her. Oh, you don't need to be like her. You simply need to let Christ who's in you do what Christ did in her. Change your attitude and your approach. 
You want someone to love you? Love them. Focus on loving them. And watch over time the rottenness fade away and a richness come into that relationship. Just do good. Bless them. Pray for them. And then he closes it all with verse 44. But you say to you, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. See, that's what it reflects. When you do these things, you reflect God. When you don't do them, you reflect flesh. For he makes his son, his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even do not even the tax collectors do the same? It's easy to love people who love you. It's easy to do good things to people who are always doing good things to you. Anybody, a sinner does that every day. That's not what he says here. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brother, brothers, what more are you doing than others? Uh, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore, here it is, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And now you're going, well, crud. I can never do that. No. You've got to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How is that possible? By believing in Jesus Christ, the Son, who was perfect. And he gives you his perfectness. He gives you his righteousness. That's what he gives you. How do you overcome evil with good? By allowing Christ in you, the hope of glory, to shine through. This is how a Christian is to live on this wicked, lost earth as a citizen of heaven. Right here. These are the principles of being citizens of heaven. It looks completely different than the way the world handles it. But i got to be honest with you, I watch Christians in their behavior with those who are against them or who harm them, and their behavior looks just like what I see if I turn on any reality TV show where a bunch of pagans are beating each other up, angry, verbally abusing each other, speaking behind each other's backs, Christians look just the same. You know why? Because we're not focused on reflecting Christ who is in us. We're just functioning out of the flesh. You are a citizen of heaven right here on earth. If you're saved, that means Christ lives in you. The Holy Spirit has regenerated your spirit. Now you are a child of God. You're different than all of them. You're different. Let it show. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning, this is so convicting because every one of us feel, we, we, we get a sense of how, how much sin wants to invade and pervade our lives. And every one of us are guilty of sin. Every one of us. And yet, Lord, oh, the marvelous grace of God that not only forgives us, but cleanses us of all unrighteousness so that we are able to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, not by our works, but by the work of Christ. 
And every day we remind ourselves of the work of Christ, how it's freed us, not put us in prison. It's freed us. And as the enemy comes and tempts us to retaliate, to get even, to not make things right, that's just like calling us back into prison. So today, Lord, we, we recognize that. And we recognize that the law could never be kept by a human being, but Christ kept it perfectly. And therefore, those who are found in Him by faith, we walk in His righteousness on this earth. And by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we don't have to give in to the flesh. Thank you, Father, for the freedom that you've given. We call upon you now to speak to our hearts and to, Lord, just transform our way of thinking, transform our behavior patterns that lead us down a path of destruction. May we be found in you, Christ, totally set free from the bondage and the power of sin. In Jesus' name, amen.